Amen. And let's continue worshiping through prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are truly worthy of our worship, that you deserve to be praised and honored today and every day. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come away, to take a break from the busyness of life, to look again into your word, to sing praises to your name. And God, we pray that your spirit would do his work. We pray that he would move and would work among us, that we would find uh, renewed joy and steadfastness and contentedness in Christ. Lord, we pray that as we move into this, our, our Christmas series for the year that Jesus would be lifted up, that he would be honored, that we would leave this place uh, renewed in Christ, restful in him, desirous to represent him well in these days. Lord, do your work. We pray that your spirit would be alive and active and powerful as it is, as you have promised that it will be. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. If you would please be seated and take your Bibles and open to John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 48 this morning and for the rest of the month of December. I know we're not quite in December yet. We're almost there, but for the month of December, we'll be taking a break from our study in the book of Revelation to prepare our hearts to celebrate Christ during this Christmas season. And in doing this, the point is we want to be joyfully eager. At least I think we do. I do. I'm not always joyfully eager, but I want to be joyfully eager. We want to be joyfully obedient to something that Peter calls us to in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter writes, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for the reason for the hope that is in you. This morning, we should consider the question, is Jesus honored in your heart, here and now, today? Or are we, are we so busy that we feel like we hardly have time to even think about Christ? Are we prepared, joyfully prepared? Are we ready and willing to give a defense, to give a gracious explanation for the hope that you have in Christ. And, and that kind of begs the question, do you have hope in Christ? As, as, you, as we gather here today, do you have hope in Christ? Would you at this moment describe yourself as grounded in Him, as rejoicing in Him? Or would you say that perhaps your joy has cooled off a little bit? Would you say that other things, maybe even good things, but other things have stolen the attention and affection that rightfully belongs to Christ? See, this morning and in the weeks to come, listen, we are not offering a guilt trip. We are not offering a a verbal beat down. No, we want to renew and refresh our hearts and our minds with the beauty and the goodness of Christ. We want to stop. We want to rest in His grace. We want to be amazed at His strength. We want to be amazed at His awesome majesty. We want to see how good it is to celebrate Jesus, to know His life and His grace at work in us. So again, each Sunday in December at our Christmas Eve service, we're going to be considering the question, who is Jesus? Who is He? And we will see 
that he is the I am. That's what we're going to cover this morning. He's the I am. And then the following week, he is the light, the life, the way, the gift, the prince of peace. And then lastly, he is the reigning king. That will be on December 31st. Now, after hearing all of that, maybe you're thinking, well, that's quite a list. How can Jesus really be all of that? How can anyone be all of that? What makes him so special that he is called the I am, the light, the life, the way, the gift, the prince of peace, the reigning king? Is that really possible? Or are we making too much of this one man? Are we investing too much hope, too much trust, too much confidence in Christ? Does is, is he really deserve all of this? Well, those kinds of questions are why we want to start here in John chapter 8 with a consideration of Jesus as the I Am. Because here in John chapter 8, we find Jesus talking with another group of people who are very suspicious of His identity, who are suspicious and questioning and doubtful of His trustworthiness and of His worthiness to be believed. And, and just to be clear, I want to get this straight out of the way, straight up front, by calling Jesus the I Am, we want to be clear about what we're doing. We are calling Jesus God. Is Jesus worthy to be declared God? We are identifying Christ here, not as separated from the Old Testament, but as intimately connected with all the promises of God in the Old Testament. We are saying that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is the God of Israel, that Jesus is one with the Father, one with the Spirit, that He is worthy of our praise and our trust and our worship. Now, I realize I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but please note this on your outline. In the Old Testament... The God of Israel is called the I Am, or Yahweh, sometimes often translated in our English Bibles as Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, over 6,800 times. And it is a monumentally significant thing that Jesus declares himself to be the I Am. And when we understand the truth that Jesus is Yahweh, that he is I am, then it makes perfect sense that he is the light, the life, the way, the gift, the prince of peace, and the reigning king. So, if, if you want Christ to be honored as holy in your heart, then begin here by grasping this truth that he is the I am. If you want to be prepared to explain the hope that you have in Christ, if indeed you do have hope in Christ, then start here by delighting in who Jesus reveals himself to be. Now, admittedly, as we drop down here in John chapter 8, we're dropping down into the middle of a conversation, which is always a dangerous thing to do. Who are these people? What are they talking about? Why are they so suspicious of Jesus? Well, if you look at the context, you'll see that here in John 8, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. He's talking with the religious leaders of his day. And up to this point, Jesus has claimed to be many things to them. Jesus has testified and taught them glorious things about himself. For example, Jesus has claimed to be the light of the world. He has claimed to be 
not only the light, but he has claimed to be the one that we need to see, the one that we need to follow. So he is the light and he is also the one that we need to see, the one we need to follow. He has also claimed to be in this conversation, the liberator. He has claimed to be the truth giver, the one who sets people free. Jesus says that it is essential for life and for freedom to know Him, to know His Word, to abide in His Word. Jesus has also claimed that those who are truly children of Abraham, those who love the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus says if you're truly a child of Abraham, you will love Him. You will adore Him. You will welcome Him and rejoice at His coming. And then... Right before the verses that we're going to consider this morning, Jesus has explained to the Pharisees why they are so hostile towards him, why they have refused to believe in him. Jesus says it's because they are not of God. They are caught up. They are entangled with, they are ensnared to the lies of the evil one. They don't love the truth. But Jesus says rather that they love pride. They love glory for themselves. And it's in the middle of this difficult and tense conversation that that the religious leaders, they have had enough and they are angry with Jesus. And so if you're in John 8, look at verse 48. This is where we're going to pick up the conversation. The religious leaders now say to Jesus this, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon, okay? That's a strange thing to say. And that was like the worst insult that they could level against Jesus. This was worse than calling Jesus a cotton-headed ninny-muggins. It was worse than calling Jesus a scruffy-looking nerf herder. They are trying to insult Jesus and shame Jesus in the most profound ways. Essentially, what they are saying to Jesus is, you are a demon-possessed Samaritan. You don't know Abraham. You belong to that group of people that worships in the wrong place. You're an idolater. You're not a liberator. You're not a truth giver. You don't set people free. You're enslaved to a demon, Jesus. You can't be trusted. Those are strong words. What is Jesus going to say to that? What can he say to that? Simply this, Jesus can speak truth in the clearest of terms. He can articulate, listen, exactly who he is and what's really happening in this situation. Look at verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Now, stop there for just a moment. Jesus says, I I honor my father. I I love my father. I honor my father. I'm not enslaved to a demon, but rather I joyfully submit myself to the father's will. And in spite of this, Jesus says, you dishonor me. You attack me. You slander me and lie about me. Now read on in verse 50. This is amazing. Jesus says then next, yet I do not seek my own glory there is one who seeks it. Okay? Stop there. From, did you hear that? Jesus said, there is, there is one who is seeking my glory. There is one who seeks the glory of 
Christ. There is one who is committed to seeing that Jesus will be honored and praised and rightly adored. And who is that? At the end of verse 50, Jesus tells us, and he is the judge. He is the judge, meaning he is the one who has the final say. He is the one whose decision and opinion matters for all of eternity. And then in the midst of this really tense and difficult conversation, Jesus then offers this word of hope and invitation. He says in verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's amazing. Jesus says, there, there is eternal life to be had, and it is found in me. There is life to be found in my word, in my power, and in my work. Come to me, trust in me, believe in me. So how will the religious leaders respond to this claim by Christ? And even as we consider their response, I ask you, how do you respond to these words this morning that are spoken by Christ? For the religious leaders, we read this in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? That really is a loaded question, isn't it? Who who do you make yourself out to be? What are you pretending here, Jesus? Do you think that you're better than Abraham? Do you think that you're greater and better than the prophets? Abraham died. All the prophets died. You're crazy talking about life and never seeing death and it's all based on you. Where Jesus takes the conversation next is both surprising, challenging, thought-provoking. Please note it on your outline. In answering their objection, in answering this objection, Jesus, listen, he returns to the subject of glory. What? What? How do you answer that objection with the discussion about glory? Jesus does that, and it is glorious, and it is powerful, and it is So necessary and good that we understand what Jesus is doing here. So he answers their objection with a discussion of glory, his glory and God's glory. Now, I know we haven't even we haven't looked at the next verse yet. We're not going to look straight away at it. But why would Jesus do this? Well, before we consider his words in verse 54, we're going to consider a couple of other verses that talk about the glory of God. And, and, and what this is going to do, it is going to set the stage to help us feel the weight and the impact of what Jesus says here to the religious leaders. For example, listen to what God said to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah about his patience towards the nation of Israel, about his refining work in the lives of his people. Listen, listen, to about, listen to what God said about why he does what he does. We read this in Isaiah 48, verse 9. God says, For my name's sake, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. 
I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, it should be obvious, but I'll say it anyway. God is passionate for the glory of his name. And I'll tell you this, it is good that he is. It is good that he is. And we will talk more later about why it is such a good thing that God is passionate for his glory. But for now, simply notice that God is not embarrassed. God is not ashamed to talk about his name and exalting his name and his glory. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 43, God said something similar to this. In chapter 43, verse 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. King David wrote something similar to this in Psalm 23, verse 3, where, where he writes, speaking of God and to God, he says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For His name's sake. God forgives sins. For the glory of His name, God shows patience that He may be exalted. God leads us into paths of righteousness. He refines and sanctifies His people for His name's sake. And God is clear, He does not give His glory away to another. God does not lie. God does not pretend like anyone else is mighty like Him is able to save like Him, is rich in kindness and grace like Him. God does not lie and pretend like anyone else is deserving of praise and honor. And again, we should be glad that God is like this. We should be glad that God is passionate for His glory. We should be glad for these things. And again, we'll talk more later about why that is. But now, with all that in mind, return to John chapter 8. And look at what Jesus says next to those challenging His honesty, to those challenging His integrity, to those challenging His sanity. Where does Jesus go? What does Jesus appeal to? The glory of God. Jesus appeals to, listen, his relationship with his Father. He appeals to his worthiness to receive and to share in the glory of God. Look at verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say... He is our God, but you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know Him and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He was glad. 
Please note it on your outline. Jesus rightly and Jesus boldly affirms at least three things. His relationship with his father, his trust, rather his worthiness to receive glory and his rightful place in redemptive history. Jesus's defense to those who think that he is crazy and demon possessed is that God the father himself is passionate for his glory is passionate to see him honored and worshipped and lifted up. Jesus' defense is that Abraham, the chosen one who received the promises of God and the covenant of circumcision, Abraham, who received the promise that he would be a blessing to the entire world and to all the nations, this is what Abraham was longing for. This is what Abraham was waiting to see. This is what Abraham rejoiced over, that he believed by faith would come to pass. Jesus is saying that the glory of God and the promises given to Abraham find their fulfillment in him. And as you can imagine, this got the religious leaders talking. This excited them a little bit. Notice how they respond to Jesus in verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, brothers and sisters, please don't misunderstand Jesus's words here. Okay, Jesus is not just saying he is not merely saying that he has seen Abraham or even that he knew Abraham. No, Jesus is saying that before Abraham ever existed, before Abraham was ever born, before Abraham ever heard the word of God and believed the word of God, Jesus says before any of that, I am. This is not just a claim to have known Abraham or to have seen Abraham. This is a claim to glory. This is a claim to God's glory. This is a claim to self-existence, to eternal existence, and to self-sufficiency. And the religious leaders understood exactly what Jesus was saying, which is why they picked up stones to stone him. They were going to kill him for blasphemy, for declaring himself to be God. Now, with all that in mind, and that was all just introduction. It was necessary introduction, but it was all just introduction. With that in mind, turn now to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, because here we get to the good news in all of this. We get to the glory and the good news of the great I Am. And listen, this is good news. It is. And I I know I haven't given you a whole lot of answers yet this morning, and I've teased, I've made a whole lot of promises about about what I will yet explain, and we are getting there. But here's the point. We know that this is good news, that God is Yahweh, that God is the great I Am, because when He declares Himself to be such, in Exodus chapter 3, He does it within the context of deliverance. He does it within the context of rescuing His people out of slavery. So, for this morning... We should be asking ourselves the question, 
What is it about God being the great I am that is such good news for people in slavery? What is it about God being the great I am that is good news for people like us? People who are in constant need of grace and rescue and assistance and deliverance. If you're in Exodus chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 13. Here, God is speaking, as you know, he is speaking to a fearful, to a reluctant Moses. God is speaking to a Moses who, quite frankly, doesn't want to go back to Egypt. Moses doesn't really want to get involved with Pharaoh. Moses doesn't want to speak for God. I don't want to go back. I don't want to lead millions of people out of Egypt and into the wilderness and into the promised land. Hard pass, God. Hard pass. Find someone else. Moses is looking for excuses and for reasons why this is a bad idea and God should look elsewhere. And in all of these excuses and objections, Moses raises one more. Okay? Moses raises one more objection and excuse. And he does this in the midst of God promising that God will be with him. God promising that you will do miracles. And by a mighty hand, I will bring the people out of Egypt. And in the midst of all of this, Moses has one more objection, one more excuse. And it revolves around the name of God and the identity of God. So if you're in Exodus 3, look at verses 13 to 17. We read this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Please note it on your outline. This is incredible. The name Yahweh, Lord, is built on the Hebrew verb for I am. This name, this forever memorial name is how God wants to be known. Why? Because it expresses His essence and His nature. This is more than just a name. This is more than just a name. Listen, this name preaches. This name declares the truth about who God is and who Jesus really is. 
This passage reminds us, if nothing else, it reminds us that names matter. Names matter. For example, you probably remember that in the Gospels, there were two disciples, two brothers, James and John, and they earned themselves the nickname, the name, the Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. I'll tell you, that name preaches, right? That name has a message to it. Why were they called this? Because they were loud. They were aggressive. They were a little full of themselves. That name communicated something about them. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, we meet a man named Nabal. The name Nabal means fool or folly, and he lived up to his name. Uh, Nabal, on the other hand, though, in spite of being a fool and having a lot of folly, he had a very wise, discerning wife named Abigail, and after Nabal had insulted and wronged and shamed King David, this is what Abigail had to say about Nabal. She said, quote, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. So he was not just a name, it communicated something about him. In Genesis chapter 17, God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, because Abraham means the father of many nations. God would also change uh, Sarah's name, well, from Sarai to Sarah, because Sarah simply means princess. And through Abraham and Sarah, God would bring nations and kings into existence. The name means something. The name communicates something about what God is doing in a situation. And this, in Exodus 3, we are told, is God's memorial name. This is how God is to be remembered throughout all generations. That's important. We should pay attention to something like this. This name preaches, this name teaches us about His essence and nature. I like how uh, pastor and author John Piper explains this. He writes, The point is that every time Israel hears or reads the word Yahweh or the short form Yah, which we hear every time we sing Hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh, or every time we see Lord, capital L-O-R-D in our English Bibles, we should think this is a proper name, like Peter or James or John, and it has a meaning given by God Himself. It means I am who I am with all that this implies. So, here it is now. Here's the big question. Here's what we have been driving to for however long that I've been up here. Here it is. Here it is. What does this name imply? What does this name mean? What is the message? What is the proclamation that God is making? And when Jesus claims to be the I am What is Jesus claiming? We're going to unpack, I believe, four quick things. Here it is. Please note it on your outline. Number one, God's name, I am, expresses, among other things, his absolute being. His absolute being, meaning that God never had a beginning and he has no end. Listen, God's name answers the question, who made God? Who made God? No one. 
No one made God. God simply is. He is the I am. He is absolute being. He is fullness of life without beginning or end. There is no place that you can hide from him. There is no place where you can escape from his being. There is no way to successfully run from him before God created the heavens and the earth. He existed in perfect and full joy and fellowship, fellowship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is why Moses, the same Moses from Exodus 3, would years later write this in Psalm 90, saying, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever You had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting You are God. That is the meaning here of this glorious name, I am. From everlasting to everlasting, from everlasting past to everlasting future, from eternity past to eternity future, you are God. You remain the same. And listen, Moses says, you are our dwelling place. You are not just a distant, glorious, transcendent God. You are our dwelling place. We find our home in You. We find our life and our safety and our joy in You. When I was a, when I was a little guy, sometimes my parents would take my brother and I to watch the San Francisco Giants play at Candlestick Park. Those were great games getting out of school a little early, going to Candlestick Park, sitting in the stadium, sometimes watching the fog roll in. You had Will Clark on first base, Robbie Thompson on second, Matt Williams on third. You had Jose Uribe playing shortstop. Those were great games. Love those games. San Francisco Giants, you don't care. You don't like the Giants. Most of you Cubs fans, or I don't know, Reds fans, I I get it. Those were great games. They were also kind of scary games. You say, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. As a little guy, once the game was over, literally thousands of people stand and start to head to the exit. And as a little guy, I can't see anything. I see a sea of people. And as a little guy, I think, this is it. This is how Chris Fritz ends. Lost at Candlestick Park, never to be found again. And I'm just looking for my parents and hoping to find my way to an exit. Cannot see a thing. But there's a moment when everything turns out good. There's a moment when everything is right as it should be. And it is that moment when we finally make our way to the car. To the car. Because listen, once I am in the car, the doors are closed and my dad is in the front seat and I know two things about my dad. I know that he knows how to operate the car, which I don't. As a kid, I was always so mystified at that lever that he would move and how does he know? He knows how to work the car and he knows the way home. Listen, outside it is chaos and cars and a mess and inside it is safety and it is security and we are traveling home and what Moses is saying here is that to be in God, to know Yahweh, the I am, is even better than being in the Fritz car with the doors locked. God as your refuge. Listen, God as the one. 
He doesn't just know how the car works, okay? He built the car. He is sovereign over the universe. He knows the way home. He is our home. In Him we find life and refuge. And listen, this is why. This is why Jesus could say things like this in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. God is absolute being. And listen, those who seek refuge in Him, they find refuge in Him. Number two, noted on your outline, God's name, I am, it expresses his absolute perfection. Meaning this, God is not evolving. God is not improving. No, he is the standard. He is the standard of beauty, wisdom, goodness, and love. Or we could say it like this. God is the absolute constant in all things. There is no change. There is no shadow of change in his character and nature. Brothers and sisters, I tell you gladly, I tell you joyfully this morning, you cannot add to his knowledge. You cannot refine his wisdom. You cannot enlarge his goodness. You cannot increase the fullness of his love. You cannot upgrade the riches of his grace. You cannot develop his sovereignty to a more complete condition. No, he is full. He is complete. He is unchanging in the fullness of his character and nature. And this is why we read things like this in James 1.16. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You see, why does James have to write that? Because there are so many people who are deceived about this very thing. There are so many people who think that God is not good or that God changes or that God is evolving or that God doesn't know what is best for his children or that God doesn't have a good and wise plan to grow us and to lead us into Christ's likeness. James says, do not be deceived. Don't think that way. My beloved brothers, he writes, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Listen, by himself, by himself, out of the fullness and the overflow of His goodness and grace, God gives what is good. God declares what is good and what is right and what is beautiful and what is wise. He Himself is the standard. And this is why, this is why, in case you were always wondering, this is why God is constantly calling His people to be like Him, to follow Him to grow in His character and likeness and nature. God wants us to share in His holiness. He wants us to share in His likeness and in His, in His love. This is the essence of holiness. This is the essence of godliness, to grow to be like Him. And we, we saw this so clearly. Uh, remember back a number of months ago when we were studying through the book of First Peter, and, and, and Peter wrote this. He encouraged his readers saying, 
as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and it is in Leviticus 11.44, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, God's name preaches his absolute perfection. It preaches his unchanging character. It reminds us that we are called to be in him and to grow in him and to be conformed to his likeness and nature. Next, note this on your outline number three. God's name, I am, expresses his absolute independence or his absolute freedom, meaning that God is dependent upon no one. He freely speaks and acts from himself, from himself. See, the truth is, God, uh, rather, the truth is nobody supports God. Nobody counsels God. Nobody supplies what he lacks. But the opposite is true. The opposite is true. God supports all that exists. God sustains, he continually sustains all that exists in creation. God gives life and breath and being and strength to everything that lives. In Hebrews chapter 1, this is made abundantly clear, where we read of Christ that he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is absolute being, absolute authority, absolute sovereignty. And it's clear that God is not constrained by anything outside of him. God is free to act and to speak and to rule out of the fullness of who he is, out of the fullness of his character and nature. God is never tempted by evil. God is never influenced by lies. No, God forever delights to show and to reveal exactly who he is. And this is why, this is why for us, freedom is never found by looking within ourselves. Freedom is never found by withdrawing from God and looking inward. That's not where freedom is found. That's not where joy is found. Not by looking to our deceived and sin-loving hearts. No, freedom is found in God. In, in, in a God who changes hearts to love like He loves. In a God who cleanses and forgives and who empowers us to actually desire what He desires. Who, uh, that He empowers us to desire what is actually good for us and good for one another and that which brings Him glory and honor. This is why Jesus could say the, the amazing things that He says to the religious leaders in John 8 where He told them, If you abide in My Word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then just a few verses later, Jesus said, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You will. You will be free indeed. And so what this means is that God is the only being in the universe that should be entirely and perfectly true to himself. We want God to be true to himself. We want God to embrace 
all that he is. And he absolutely does. We should not be true to ourselves. We should not be true to our confused hearts because we are so often twisted in our thinking. But God is free. He is free to live and to speak and to rule out of the fullness of his being. He is free to give liberty to his children through Jesus Christ. And so, I realize it almost sounds silly to say it this way, but I'll say it anyway. God is, at the same time, the most valuable, the most interesting, the most important, the most enjoyable, the most awesome, the most distinct, the most incomprehensible, the most worthy person in or outside of the known universe. He is. He is all that He is. He is truly worthy. He is worthy of our interest, our love, our attention, our obedience, our praise, our loyalty, our trust, and our devotion. And this brings us to our last point, noted on your outline. God's name, I Am, expresses His absolute value and worthiness. Meaning this, God Himself is the greatest gift that He can give. Love's greatest gift is God Himself. And again, this is why we wanted to start here in our Christmas series. Because in sending Jesus, in giving the gift of His Son, God has given us the greatest gift because God has given us Himself. We celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. This is why the Apostle John would close the prologue. He would close the introduction to his gospel with these words, saying, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus reveals God. Who is God? What is He like? Look to Jesus and you see the answer to the question. And it is Christ Himself who makes the declaration. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is absolute life and being. Jesus is absolute fullness and perfection. He is absolute freedom and independence. He is the liberator. He is the truth giver. Jesus is absolute value and worth. Jesus is love's greatest gift. And so, as we embark upon this Christmas season, we want to pray. We want to pray that God will give us eyes to see. We want to pray that God will give us the wisdom that we need to treasure this one who is the I am. We want to pray that, that this would not just be a busy, frantic few weeks, but that we would adore the one who is our refuge 
in every season, in every trial, in every stage of life. And listen, if you don't know, if you're here, you're watching online and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you'd like to talk with someone about what we've talked about this morning, it would be our joy to do that. We're, we'll be available after the service. You can reach out anytime during the week. It would be our privilege to talk with you about these things. But in response to this truth this morning, in response to God revealing himself, let's pray that Jesus will actually be honored in our hearts as holy. Remember how we began with uh, 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter telling us that we are to honor Jesus in our hearts as holy, that we're to be prepared to give a gracious answer and a defense to anyone who asks us for the hope in us. Let's pray that we have that hope that Christ is honored in our hearts as holy. So let's pray and then we will again sing together. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for what you have revealed. God, we praise you that you have not left us in darkness, that you have not left us in isolation, but that you have revealed yourself to us in Christ. God, we pray that we would respond rightly. God, we pray that we would not let these days go quickly by, but that we would take time to adore and to treasure Christ. And then, as an overflow of that, God, may we live for you. May we live for your glory and honor. God, may we not waste the opportunities that you give us to speak and to act as ambassadors for Christ. God, use us in wonderful ways. Let others see you in us, your love at work in us, your spirit at work in us, your truth in us. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.